You know you've got a comeback in you. When you take the next step, you're going to make it count. For your career, for your family, for your life. You can earn a degree you're proud of with Purdue Global. Purdue Global is backed by Purdue University, one of the nation's most respected and innovative public universities. This is your chance. This is your opportunity. This is your comeback. Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu. When you buy Kroger brand products, you feel like you're winning. That's because they offer proven quality at lower than low prices. In fact, we guarantee that you and your family will love how Kroger brand products taste. Or you get your money back. So next time you're shopping for the family, look for delicious Kroger brand products. Because they'll make you all feel like you're winning. Shop now, in-store, or online. Kroger. Fresh for everyone. I'm Katia Adler, host of The Global Story. Over the last 25 years, I've covered conflicts in the Middle East, political and economic crises in Europe, drug cartels in Mexico. Now I'm covering the stories behind the news all over the world in conversation with those who break it. Join me Monday to Friday to find out what's happening, why, and what it all means. Follow The Global Story from the BBC wherever you listen to podcasts. Are you looking for the perfect move-in ready home this spring season? Now's the time to buy at Fisher Homes. For a limited time only, enjoy below market interest rates starting at 5.375% APR, 6.139% APR. With these exclusive lower rates, you can save hundreds on a move-in ready home and start enjoying the benefits of home ownership even faster. Schedule your personal tour with one of our new home specialists at fisherhomes.com and make this spring the season you find your perfect home sweet home. Financing provided by Victory Mortgage, LLC, NMLS 461249, Equal Housing Lender. Hey, what's up, everybody? Jake Brennan here. I hope you've been enjoying these stories about Amy Winehouse in season four of 27 Club. While you're digging into the downfall of one of the greatest modern divas, I wanted to share a story about another queen of the pop realm, Taylor Swift. You can hear all about Taylor's disgraceful fans and interstate stalkers in the season nine premiere of Disgraceland, my other music and true crime podcast. You can hear that episode on January 18th, wherever you listen to podcasts, or you can hear it along with every single other Disgraceland episode right now, exclusively at amazon.com slash Disgraceland. The 27 Club is a production of iHeartRadio and Double Elvis. Amy Winehouse died at the age of 27, and she lived a life that was quickly running out of time. I can give you 27 reasons why that statement is true. 11 would be the date in July of 1951, when one of her musical heroes was briefly jailed for being in the wrong place at the wrong time. Five more would be the number of years that passed since the release of her career-making second album. Five long years during which she never delivered a follow-up. Another two would be the number of years her ex-husband, Blake Fielder Civil, would receive when he was sentenced for stealing 4,000 pounds worth of someone else's stuff to support his drug habit. Seven more would be the hour of the evening when Amy sent what would be her final tweet, a nebulous missive that got the internet in the world talking. And two would be the hour of the morning on Saturday, July 23, 2011, when her live-in bodyguard unsuspectingly saw her alive for the last time all totaling 27. On this, 
our ninth episode of season four, The Wrong Place at the Wrong Time. 4,000 pounds of someone else's stuff. Getting the world talking in Amy Winehouse. I'm Jake Brennan, and this is The 27 Club. Sarah Vaughn held the sheet music in her hand and felt her heart sink. The song was shit. Probably taken from the top of a whole pile of shit songs. Songs that Columbia Records owned outright and therefore could easily parlay into easy money. Frank Sinatra wasn't demeaned with shit songs from this throwaway pile. No one at Columbia was forcing Frank to slum it with a song like The Gas Pipe She's Leaking Joe. And just look at that stupid goddamn title. The gas pipe she's leaking, Joe. Condescending as hell. Offensive. Even more offensive was that Columbia wanted her, Sarah Vaughn, a black woman, to sing a song that essentially lampooned black culture. And don't even get her started with the cheesy whitewashed Calypso arrangement. The whole thing was a cluster. You know what would happen if Columbia A&R man Mitch Miller told Frank Sinatra to sing something like that? A song that parodied Italians? The opposite of Amore, for starters. Frank would either tear Mitch a new asshole in front of the entire orchestra, or he'd just bounce, leave, Gonsville, baby. Sarah Vaughn didn't have the luxuries that Frank Sinatra had. Rosemary Clooney didn't either. But Rosemary always did what Mitch Miller told her to do. She didn't put up a fight. Sarah Vaughn, on the other hand, not so much. She knew that she was above the material. She had a four octave range, never got hoarse, never ran short of breath on stage. Hell, she could have been an opera singer. And yet, Sarah Vaughn was also smart enough to know that she had to get creative when it came to putting up a fight. If she refused to perform the material, Mitch Miller would gladly fire her on the spot and find someone else to replace her. Fine, Mitch Miller could make her sing the song, but. That didn't mean he could make her sing the song well. So for the gas pipe she's leaking, Joe, Sarah did one take, decent at best, on purpose. She took the session about as seriously as she took the song, which was 0%. And there was no passion in the performance, no nuance. Just the right notes in the right places. And honestly, a dilettante like Mitch Miller probably didn't even notice the difference. She claimed it as a little victory in a larger battle. She also bristled at those on the other end of the spectrum, the jazz purists who expected her to sing a particular way. She didn't mind it when they called her by one of her nicknames, like Sassy or the Divine One, but don't call her a jazz singer. That just pigeonholed her. She loved jazz, no doubt. She lived it, breathed it. She was the vocal equivalent of Bird's or Dizzy's horn, but she wanted her instrument to be free, not beholden to one genre or style or expectation. 
Inmates at a Detroit prison heard that trademark sound of freedom on the evening of July 11, 1951, when they were unexpectedly treated to Sarah's voice ringing from cell to cell all through the night. She'd been nabbed as part of a police raid at a private home that doubled as an after-hours club. Detroit cops smelled a potential violation of the state's liquor law. Thankfully, they didn't smell the reefer. They busted windows, they broke the door down, they took Sassy's prints and held her for nearly 12 hours. But they didn't have anything on Sarah Vaughn. Just like a grand jury in Washington, D.C. didn't have anything on Sarah Vaughn the next year in 1952. Charles Ireland, the United States Attorney General, wanted to know what happened to 99 pounds of reefer that literally disappeared during a drug bust. That was a fuck ton of drugs up in smoke. And Sarah was one of a handful of musicians who were suspected of having intimate knowledge of the whereabouts of the missing marijuana. And they asked her to testify, but she had no clue. And even if she did, she wasn't telling. She did tell her attorney about the things she was really concerned about. And it wasn't petty busts by the fuzz at private house parties. It was the thing with Columbia. Sarah got tossed all these shit songs, even though she was of the same caliber as the label's so-called top artists, all of whom happened to be white. Doris Day, Joe Stafford, Danny fucking Kay, and Frank. And despite the fact that she was artistically and commercially up on that top shelf with her label mates, Sarah didn't get the same top shelf material or the same top shelf promotional schedule. Her attorney agreed. And they filed a letter of complaint with Columbia. She was one of the record label's top artists and she demanded to be treated as such. Columbia's lawyers advised the label to see the error of their ways and soon they made sure Sarah got top billing. Soon after that, her fight not just fought, but won. Sarah Vaughn made an unexpected move. She bailed from Columbia to go to do her thing, first at Mercury Records and then at Roulette Records and elsewhere. She made moves like a star because she was a star. She knew her worth. The labels didn't tell her what she was worth, she told them. She refused to be defined by the name of the label on her records or by the material she was given to perform. Decades later, more than 10 years after Sarah Vaughn's death in 1990, Amy Winehouse made her own moves. She resisted definitions. She performed the material she wanted to perform, much of it written by herself, and it didn't matter if it was sanitized for radio, didn't matter if the song was titled Fuck Me Pumps, or if the song was told from the perspective of an anti-hero who resisted the call to go to rehab. Amy Winehouse modeled herself after her musical heroes, heroes like Sarah Vaughn, not only in the way she sang, but in the way she did things, her way. Most 20-somethings Amy's age had no clue who Sarah Vaughn was. Maybe they knew Ella or Billy's name, but not Sarah's. Didn't matter. Sarah Vaughn was always in fashion. Amy knew that. And her music and her attitude were guideposts for Amy along the way. Because maybe her generation didn't know who Sarah Vaughn was, but they were definitely going to know who Amy Winehouse was. And they were never going to forget her. Honestly, at this point, in summer of 2011, her career could tank and she would still remain one of the greats. Or so she hoped. But Amy's confidence was at an all-time low. It had been five years since Back to Black, and although she talked a big game about her upcoming third album, the reality was that nothing was happening. She'd already done the hard part. She had made her Sarah Vaughn stand, that defiant stand where she decided what material she would produce and how it would be produced. 
The floor, as it were, was hers, but now you couldn't even see the floor in the studio. The lights were dim, the tape was blank, the songs weren't ready, her focus was off, her game was off. And it was clearly time to reclaim her life and her career before she was made immortal for all the wrong reasons. Amy Winehouse was trying to decide what to wear. She and her boyfriend, the English film director, Reg Travis, were due to attend a wedding on Sunday, two days away. It was July 22, 2011. Amy and Reg had managed to patch things up since pictures of Reg hand-in-hand with his ex-girlfriend had been splashed all over the tabloids. Reg's new crime film, Screwed, had been in theaters for a month, and so far the reviews weren't much better than Psychosis, the horror film he directed the year before. But even if his films didn't achieve the kind of critical acclaim he hoped for, as the romantic partner of England's most notorious singer, Reg received high marks. He had his shit together, unlike Amy's ex, Blake Fielder Civil, who continued to fall apart on an absurdly regular basis. Only a month earlier, Blake was sentenced to two years and eight months in jail, this time for a burglary he'd committed in order to scrounge up bread for junk. He was carrying a gun when he did it too, never mind the fact that the gun wasn't loaded, it wasn't even real. And Blake and his accomplice, Christopher Sylvester, broke into a house in Rodden, a suburb of Leeds, turned the place inside out, and they carried a hammer, some tape, ski masks, and gloves. The fake gun was to make Blake feel about seven stone larger in case they encountered some real fucking hoodlums. The duo pulled drawers from cabinets. They emptied cupboards. They turned over tables and stuck their fingers in every nook and cranny. They got away with jewelry. They hauled out a television, Xbox, DVD player. All told, the duo was busted with 4,000 pounds worth of someone else's stuff when they were pulled over by local police. The cops also found Blake's gun, which turned out to be 100% fake. At least they couldn't get him on illegal possession of a firearm. And to think, Amy thought, I was married to that one. Marriage. The weight of that union hung over Amy's head as she thought about the weekend wedding that she was attending. Her marriage to Blake had been an A-plus disaster from the start. Even though they'd been divorced for two years and Blake had a new flame with a baby on the way, Amy couldn't shake the notion that he had been her soulmate. She couldn't explain it. How did you explain an attraction to the person who had dragged you down so far? That was beyond opposites attracting. Especially now, when she was involved in a relationship that was every bit as healthy as her time with Blake had been toxic. The fact that Blake's name was still tattooed directly above her heart likely didn't give Reg Travis the warmest of fuzzy feelings. Amy was just glad that it wasn't her own wedding she was getting ready to attend. The only thing she had to concern herself with this particular weekend was what to wear. And she wanted to wear what she wanted to wear, not what someone else wanted her to wear. She was over being pressured by others into doing things for them, like the show in Serbia. Amy heard the rumors that followed the show, the ones that a tour manager or a bodyguard or even someone in her family had literally pushed her onto the stage in Serbia forcibly made her perform when she clearly was not in the right state to even be around that many people, let alone sing for them. 
But it wasn't like that. She hadn't been strong-armed to sing, not physically at least. She probably wouldn't have gone through with it if it had been her decision, or if she hadn't been so fucked up that she couldn't make her own decisions. To be honest, given the option of back-to-back -back shows in front of crowds of thousands or a simpler fate of frequenting pubs in Camden Town as just another face, a face that would have a go at a tune on a tiny stage every now and then, Amy Winehouse would have chosen the latter. She didn't need all of this, all this pomp, all this circumstance, oceans of people. Nor did she need every single action she took and every single decision she made picked apart by the world as if her life was nothing more than fodder for nine to fivers congregating around water coolers. And of course, the show in Serbia led to more questions. Was she well? Was she high? Should she really continue on with her tour? Was this all indicative of a larger problem? A problem with her manager or perhaps even her label, Island Records? Did anyone close to Amy actually care for her? Or was she just being used to make a quick buck at every turn? She was done with questions. She may have had some answers, but she was just as tired of replying to the questions as she was of the questions themselves. And she was tired, tired, physically exhausted. She picked out a dress, just pointed to one on the rack. Seconds after she pointed at it, she couldn't even remember what it looked like anymore. She took a swig from a glass. And then she logged on to Twitter. She stared at the prompt on the screen. What's happening? Good question, Twitter. What was happening? She took another swig. Fuck, it was late. She typed oinka 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 while you awake and then clicked the tweet button. Why was she awake? What time was it really? And where was Reg? The replies to her tweets started coming in fast and furious. She knew they would. And that trademark whistle notification sound, another and another, each whistle stumbling over the last and then being cut off by the next. People wanted to know what it meant. Oinka, oinka. Was it an inside joke? Was she speaking in code to someone? Was she talking to herself? Was she once again beyond fucked up? This was online gibberish from a fucked up mind. Amy laughed. All she had to do was write some stupid phrase online and they all devoured it. Some bullshit news site, maybe even Perez Hilton, was probably already making clickbait out of this tweet right now. If they could only see her now, at home, doing fuck all, she wasn't endlessly fascinating like they all thought. Being endlessly fascinating was nice and all, and that is until you were the one they were all endlessly fascinated with. The next Saturday, July 23rd, 2011, Amy continued to shrink away from doing anything a superstar would do. It was a wonderfully prosaic day. She met her mom, Janice, for lunch, and they took their time. And there were no paparazzi on site to shove camera lenses in her face, which, of course, begged a question that was being asked around this time. If Amy Winos did something and the paparazzi wasn't there to document it, had she actually done something? She returned to her home on Camden Square. She hadn't hallucinated tiny mice for days. She was no longer afraid to look into mirrors for fear that a figure would emerge from them. She was beginning to embrace a feeling of being quite simply normal or something like it at least. The semi-detached Victorian she was living in wasn't exactly normal. It set her back 2.5 million pounds when she bought it in 2009. She'd only recently moved in, seeing as she sank another 200,000 pounds into it to build a gym and a recording studio on site. And the doctor who showed up that night for what was essentially a glorified proof of life check. Maybe that wasn't so normal either. 
Dr. Christina Romate was there at the behest of Island Records, sent weekly to make sure Amy's health was on the up and up. Dr. Romate knew that Amy wasn't about to follow anyone's advice or instructions but her own. No offense, Doc, but Amy did things her way, and no, not like Frank Sinatra, but like Tony Bennett and Sarah Vaughn. Amy told Dr. Romate she was bored, and that's why she was drinking. She would stop drinking for a few weeks until the boredom got the best of her, and then she'd start again. She wasn't sure if the Librium was helping. She took it for alcohol withdrawal and anxiety. If only Librium cured boredom. Drinking passed the time, and there was a lot of time to pass, so much time. Time didn't feel finite. It felt like it just went on forever, that it would never end. And some days and some nights, Jesus, time just bored the shit out of you. Time used to be more fun back when she could pass the time with a crack rock or some junk. That shit got you floating in time. The whole space-time continuum itself, whatever the fuck that was, black holes that went on forever. You weren't a body, you didn't have a brain. You know, the very concept of time was a non-concept. But she was clean now, and there was none of that junk to fuck with time. She kept drinking. She wanted time to feel finite. She wanted to be able to measure it, to look at it, from one end to the other, the dawn of time to the end of time, and really hold its measurement in her hands. She looked at her hands. No time, just skin and knuckle wrinkles and the fingerprints on her digits. She took another drink, and her eyes went a little glassy. Dr. Romate asked Amy if she was planning on not drinking at some point that evening. Would she stop once the doctor left? Amy said she didn't know. But she did know. She just wasn't answering questions anymore. We'll be right back after this word, word, word. This is it. Your moment. This is your time to make your comeback with Purdue Global. When you come back with a Purdue Global degree, you create opportunity for yourself, your family, and your future. It's a degree you can be proud of, a degree that employers will trust and respect. Purdue Global offers working adults like you over 175 flexible degree programs to meet your specific career goals. These include associate, bachelor's, master's, and doctoral degrees and certificates. Purdue Global degree programs range from nursing to business to communication and more. Whatever your interest, we have the degree that will move you forward. You have the knowledge. You have the experience. Now it's time to get credit for the work you've done and earn the recognition you deserve with Purdue Global. Purdue's online university for working adults. You know you're worth it. We do too. So don't wait another second to get the degree that will take your career to the next level. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu. From BBC Radio 4, Britain's biggest paranormal podcast is going on a road trip. I thought in that moment, oh my God, we've summoned something from this board. This is is uncanny usa he says somebody's in the house and i screamed listen to uncanny usa wherever you get your bbc podcasts if you dare
Are you looking for the perfect move-in ready home this spring season? Now's the time to buy at Fisher Homes. For a limited time only, enjoy below market interest rates starting at 5.375% APR, 6.139% APR. With these exclusive lower rates, you can save hundreds on a move-in ready home and start enjoying the benefits of home ownership even faster. Schedule your personal tour with one of our new home specialists at fisherhomes.com and make this spring the season you find your perfect home sweet home. Financing provided by Victory Mortgage, LLC, NMLS 461249, Equal Housing Lender. The wait is almost over. Get ready for the 2024 NFL season as the full schedule is announced. Every rivalry, every rematch, every rookie debut, every game revealed. The 2024 NFL schedule release presented by Verizon coming in May. Live on NFL Network, ESPN2, and streaming on NFL+. Terms and conditions apply to NFL+. Visit nfl.com slash schedule release to learn more. Amy Winehouse slept in late. That was standard operating procedure. Completely ordinary. Especially when she'd been up late the night before, which she had been. Andrew Morris, Amy's live-in bodyguard, knew exactly how late. He'd listened to her for hours, holed up inside her bedroom, well after Dr. Christina Romate had left earlier that evening. Andrew listened from elsewhere in the Camden Square house as Amy watched television, laughed, spoke loudly to friends on the phone. Even louder was her new drum set, which she was inspired to play in the wee hours of the morning. Drums were something new, scratched her creative itch, maybe even more than singing at this moment. Or maybe it depended on the moment. The few times she played the drums in front of a crowd weren't what she expected. It was like when you tried to play a brand new song in front of a huge festival crowd, when they all wanted to hear the same old hits. The small pub crowd didn't want to hear Amy's attempt to coax out a reggae or a dub rhythm on a kit. She was a singer, not a drummer. The audience couched their disapproval in drunken requests. Sing, Amy, sing. Sing rehab, Amy. She was no one-hit wonder, but nevertheless, the truth remained. She was that song, and that song was her. It continued to define who she was five years after its release. A tragic caricature. Amy worried that she needed to come to terms with the possibility that she would never escape that role for as long as she lived. Now, at home in Camden Town, Andrew Morris was the one worrying. He was concerned that Amy's late-night drumming would disturb the neighbors. He reminded her to keep it down. The last time Andrew spoke to Amy before he hit the sack was around two in the morning. She had her laptop out. She was watching clips of herself performing online, and she glanced up at Andrew. Boy, I can sing, she said in a rare, unguarded moment of confidence. Damn right you can sing, Andrew responded. And then she made a confession. She would gladly give it all up, every last bit of it. The Grammy Awards, the Brit Awards, the Ivor Novello Awards, the VMA Moonmen, the duet with Tony Bennett, her posh Camden address, the money, every last quid, if it meant that she could go back back seven, eight years or so, even earlier, back to a time when she could walk down the street, any street, any street in London at all, and not be mobbed, back to a time when her name wasn't easily found in any given paper, or when unflattering and unsuspecting photos of her were in her mainstay on TMZ or Cocker, before she had to get used to being demeaned with the nickname Wino, and if she was being honest with herself, that would also be back to a time before she ever laid eyes on Blakefield or Civil. But maybe even that couldn't have been avoided. Whether her path in life had led her to worldwide celebrity status or not, she
she wondered if she would have met Blake regardless, as if it was fading. Just because things were meant to be did not mean that they were meant to be perfect. There were plenty of things in this life that were meant to be doomed. Like the jazz hip-hop supergroup she wanted to assemble, Questlove on the drums, Raphael Sadiq on bass, most deaf joining her on vocals. They couldn't seem to get that project off the ground. Shit, maybe it wasn't even on the ground yet. Amy had trouble remembering if she had legit talked with those guys about it or if it was just some fantastical notion that lived inside her brain. In some days, okay, or more like most days, her looming third album felt like even more of an illusion than the supergroup idea ever did. Her long-awaited follow-up to Back to Black. The pressure was, at times, unbearable. Not just to deliver something, but to deliver something on the level of the last record. It had to be better than great. Maybe it would never happen. She had written some songs, though, a dozen or so. She had to live her songs before she wrote them. Everyone knew that. Salah and Remy knew that. She didn't write that shit overnight. She was keeping the songs close, guarded. It would be like letting people read her diary if she started sharing them everywhere. Titles like, You Always Hurt the Ones You Love, made that clear. You know, as soon as I went at the airways, people all over London were gonna say it was all about them. Then she remembered that she had booked some upcoming studio time, both with Salam and with Mark Ronson. And that gave her hope. Maybe she would figure out this third album predicament after all. Andrew let Amy try to get some sleep. He had returned from vacation only a few days earlier, but in the time following his return, as he would later explain, he was well aware that she was drinking on the regular. He could tell by the way her words sounded when she spoke, but he didn't see Amy overdrink. She appeared to have drinks for the pleasure of having drinks, not to maintain a 24-7 drunk buzz. He didn't see her binge. Nothing was out of the ordinary. Nothing seemed wrong. Still, Andrew's job was to keep tabs on Amy Winos at all times of the day, no matter how ordinary things appeared. So around 10 a.m. the following morning, Saturday, July 23, 2011, Andrew quietly made his way to Amy's bedroom. The house was quiet. He found Amy lying in bed, out, cold, sleeping it off, completely ordinary, standard operating procedure. Andrew closed the door as quietly as he had opened it and let Amy continue to rest. He passed the time and turned on the news. A car bombing and then 77 people killed on an island in Norway. They were saying it was a terrorist attack. The news fucking sucked. He switched the set off. Time didn't stretch that day. The hours went by quickly. And before long, it was the afternoon. After 3 p.m., actually. Andrew still hadn't heard Amy make any noise. Probably time to check on her again. He went back to her bedroom and opened the door. She was still there, out cold, sleeping it off. Only Amy was still in the exact same position that she had been in earlier in the morning when Andrew checked on her. It was eerie, like he was looking at a carbon copy image five hours later. Amy's arms and legs in the exact same spots as they were before. Absolutely nothing had changed. Fuck. Andrew ran to her side. She wasn't breathing. Fuck, no pulse. She was out cold still. Two vodka bottles were on the floor next to the bed. They were empty. Andrew grabbed his phone and dialed emergency services. And when he got through to dispatch, he couldn't believe the words coming out of his mouth. Amy Winehouse was dead.
On the evening of July 23, 2011, the news traveled fast. And so did the rumors. Rumors that Amy Winehouse had taken her own life. Rumors that the stale rock and roll adage, hope I die before I get old, was very much alive and well. There was also a rumor that quickly became conjecture in both printed and television news, and it was this. Amy's death was due to a drug overdose. That one was bolstered by a story told by a 56-year-old London fixer, the kind of guy you went to when the kind of people you were looking for weren't simply listed in the white pages. And this story had legs. Tony Azar Party said it was around 11.30 in the evening on Friday, July 22nd, the day before Amy was discovered dead. That was the last time he ever saw her. He was walking past a pub called The Eagle. A taxi cab rolled up, the window rolled down. Amy stuck her head out. Tony as a party knew people, so of course he knew Amy Winehouse. And Amy Winehouse knew that Tony was the guy to get you what you were looking for when you weren't exactly sure where to look for it. Amy asked him to get in the cab. She was looking to score. Could Tony get the hookup? Tony was a bit surprised. He thought she was off of it. It was all over the papers how she had kicked the stuff. Not exactly, she told him. She still dabbled when she felt like it. And tonight, she most definitely felt like it. Tonight, she'd been fielding phone calls from Blake from prison where he was currently doing time for the whole fake gun burglary bullshit. It was fucking annoying. Straight up harassment is what it was, so yeah, not exactly off of it. And there were nights to dabble, and tonight was sure as shit one of them. Right. Tony could call this guy, no sweat. Mr. Big was what they referred to him as. They drove to a telephone box. When Tony stepped inside, it was like he was stepping inside of a time machine or whatever the hell that Doctor Who thing was called. Tony made the phone call. Amy awaited impatiently in the cab. Soon after, a car pulled up. Dealer stepped out. Amy handed over a wad of bills, 1,200 pounds by Tony's count, and the dealer handed her some crack and some heroin. Afterwards, Amy had the cab drop Tony off in the nearby Archway neighborhood of North London. She gave him a kiss on the cheek on his way out the door. I want Amy's family to know the truth about what happened, Tony said, only days later when his story hit the press. I want to help them out. Tony's story seemed credible, not only due to Amy's history of drug use and relapse, but because by telling it to the press and the police, he faced retaliation from the dealer who came through with the hookup that night, AKA Mr. Big. And another anonymous source seemed to back up the overdose theory. This source told the Mirror that Amy's boyfriend, Reg Travis, had discovered that Amy had been talking with Blake again from his prison cell on the night before her death. It led to a fight which led to Reg storming out of the house which led to Amy shooting a lethal dose of heroin. It was all very reminiscent of the story Amy had told years earlier about the self-harm she'd inflicted on herself after Blake allegedly caught her with a call girl in their hotel room about to get high together. But Tony Party's story and the story told by the source in the mirror both bluntly contradicted the version of events told by Andrew Morris, the bodyguard who lived at Amy's house and listened to her talk, laugh, and play drums into the wee hours of Saturday morning. That version of events didn't involve fights with her boyfriend or drug-scoring odysseys after midnight. Further contradiction came in the form of the toxicology report. That was scientific contradiction. The report showed that there were no illegal substances in Amy's system when she died. None. 
the narrative that the tabloids had peddled for so long didn't come to its expected conclusion. No crack pipes and no needles. Some were shocked when the truth came out about Amy Winehouse's death, while others found it sadly inevitable. But one thing was for certain. The conclusion of Amy's 27 year story wasn't as simple and tidy as you may think. In some ways, it's not even over. I'm Jake Brennan, and this is The 27 Club. The 27 Club is hosted and produced by me, Jake Brennan, for Double Elvis in partnership with iHeartRadio. Zeth Lundy is the lead writer and co-producer. Story and copy editing by Pat Healy. This episode was mixed by Matt Bowden. Additional music and score elements by Ryan Spraker and Henry Lunetta. Sources for this episode are available at doubleelvis.com on the 27 Club series page. Talk to me on social at DisgracelandPod and hang out with me live on my Twitch channel, Disgraceland Talks. For more news on your favorite podcast, follow at doubleelvis on Instagram. Rockarola. I'm Katia Adler, host of The Global Story. Over the last 25 years, I've covered conflicts in the Middle East, political and economic crises in Europe, drug cartels in Mexico. Now I'm covering the stories behind the news all over the world in conversation with those who break it. Join me Monday to Friday to find out what's happening, why, and what it all means. Follow The Global Story from the BBC wherever you listen to podcasts. Are you looking for the perfect move-in ready home this spring season? Now's the time to buy at Fisher Homes. For a limited time only, enjoy below market interest rates starting at 5.375% APR, 6.139% APR. With these exclusive lower rates, you can save hundreds on a move-in ready home and start enjoying the benefits of home ownership even faster. Schedule your personal tour with one of our new home specialists at fisherhomes.com and make this spring the season you find your perfect home sweet home. Financing provided by Victory Mortgage, LLC, NMLS 461249, Equal Housing Lender. The wait is almost over. Get ready for the 2024 NFL season as the full schedule is announced. Every rivalry, every rematch, every rookie debut, every game revealed. The 2024 NFL schedule release presented by Verizon coming in May. Live on NFL Network, ESPN2, and streaming on NFL+. Terms and conditions apply to NFL+. Visit nfl.com slash schedule release to learn more. I'm Scott Weinberger, journalist and former deputy sheriff. In my new podcast series, Cold-Blooded, I'm embedded in the cold case investigation into the death of firefighter Billy Halpern. Experience this investigation in a truly unique way, untangling secrets that may reveal the answers to not only one case, but almost a dozen. Listen to Cold-Blooded, the Apollo Jim murders on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.